When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie that we podcast devoted to a classic film the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here again with... Genevieve Kosky. Scott Tobias. I'm Tasha Robinson. On last week's episode, we discussed Children of Men, Alfonso Cuaron's harrowing 2006 science fiction film about a world made insane by rapid onset infertility. In The Last of Us, it's a more immediately dramatic event that transforms the world and one that wipes out much of the population through a much more rapid and violent means than a slow generational die-off. The Last of Us opens on the day the world ends, a seemingly unremarkable date on the 2003 calendar when the mind-controlling cordyceps fungi, having made the leap from the insect world to humanity, begin turning humans into ravenous, zombie-like infected, who live only to reproduce their own kind by infecting others. It's also the day the show's male protagonist, Joel, loses his daughter and begins a path toward becoming the gruff, tough-talking, seen-too-much man we meet again when the show fast-forwards 20 years to the Boston quarantine zone of 2023. It's a totalitarian state where Joel not only makes a living doing jobs for the state, but finds more gainful employment working as a smuggler with his partner, Tess, played by Anna Torv. From the Fireflies, a radical group that opposes the government forces of Fedra, Joel and Tess receive the unusual assignment of getting a 14-year-old girl named Ellie, played by Bella Ramsey, to safety. Why Ellie? Because she's been bitten by an infected, but not turned, and thus might be the key to ending the cordyceps infestation. But getting her to the scientists who might be able to help to use her to find a cure means traveling across a treacherous land and making dangerous stops along the way. We'll talk it over after the break. If you don't think there's hope for the world, why bother going on? You haven't seen the world, so you don't know. You keep going for family. I'm not family. No. You're cargo. Why are you so important? Somewhere out west. They're working on a cure. I think what really impressed them was the fact that I didn't turn into a monster. If she so much as twitches. <laughs> All right, everyone. Last of Us, We, to be clear, we have 
are talking about the first five episodes, which will, all of which will air by the time this episode drops, right? Right, Genevieve? Correct. Yes. So no, as long as you're keeping up with the show, there will be no spoilers for what's to come unless you've played the game, which you kind of know exactly what's to come. But that's a whole <laughs> other uh, issue. Did everyone enjoy these first five episodes? Yes, yes. but... <laughs> yes, I did. I, I, I want to hear from uh, Scott and Tasha because uh, Keith and I have discussed it a, a fair amount since he is recapping it for Vulture. So, but I have not yet heard what the two of you, your reactions to The Last of Us. I mean, I think it's exceptionally good. The production value, the performances, the conceit, its ability to kind of move you through different worlds, through move you through time. That those time jumps are particularly fascinating. I like how how the show is able to to uh, show you what the, the world that was as well, well as the world that that is, or that w- what the world would become. All that is really good. It's effective as a horror show, but it's also can can uh, gear shift and be quite moving as well. I think the third episode, which is which is the which was quite ballyhooed, is the is by far the longest of these episodes. Is you know some of the best TV I've seen in quite some time i was really impressed by that stretch again just the show immediately flexing its muscles in terms of storytelling i i'm a fan i liked it tasha what'd you think uh for me maybe if i'd started this earlier it would hit differently as it was i rewatched children of men and then i started the last of us and my initial response was just wow this is really just kind of doing Children of Men over and over again, isn't it? Like, <laughs> mm. there are so many of the, not not just the setup elements, like the kind of uh, oppressive, violent remnant government and the resistance uprising, like, led by a woman who's made some compromises and is... Um, kind of cynical and hard-bitten and idealistic at the same time and the the young girl who has to be carried to freedom because her body is kind of magical like it's not just those big broad swaths it's just on a shot by shot basis uh there's a shot at one point of the rebellion has a sigil which it graffitos on walls and the government comes along and like whitewashes the entire wall trying to get rid of it. And there's like a, a shot that's pretty much exactly identical in Last of Us to uh, something that happens in, in Children of Men. So it took me some getting into. And on top of that, I'm I'm a little tired of plague stories, guys. I'm a, I was already a little tired of wow, zombie bold, stories. Bold stance. <laughs> But yeah, there's there's so much of it right now. You know, it's it's almost like people had recent uh, like first person experience with uh, a a giant global plague and are working it out uh, through art or something like that. Mm-hmm. That said, the the further Last of Us gets away, and I, I say this as somebody who never played the games, uh, so I I don't know the story, I don't know these beats. The further the episodes get away from that kind of like core dynamic, the more there is going on. And the more it focuses on other kind of character building, the more I find myself falling into it. Uh, That third episode I thought was really spectacular. The fifth episode really, really drew me in. I'm getting involved, I think, a lot more in other characters than in the, the core duo. But ironically, also just like the further we get away from the kind of the familiar setting and the familiar setup of of children of men, and the more we're focusing in kind of specifically on Joel's psychology and on what it means to try to move forward in the world as a survivor of trauma and tragedy and kind of what that does to you. Like, 
I'm really, really not a fan of bitter, grizzled old man meets plucky orphan who turns his worldview around. But Last of Us keeps selling me on it. The, <laughs> the character interactions, the writing, and especially Pedro Pascal's performance just keeps looping me into a dynamic that I thought I was, I was really, really done with. I think Pascal and Ramsey are, are really extraordinary in the leads mm -hmm. uh, too. We should at this point we should also I should interject that. So one thing uh, is co-created by Neil Druckmann, who wrote the video game, and Craig Mazin, who is has done a lot of different things. Probably most relevant to this, he recently did the really terrific uh, Chernobyl miniseries for for HBO. So that that's the creative yeah. force behind it. Uh, yeah, I mean, Ch Chernobyl is really key, too. I mean, if you talk about influences. This really feels of a piece with Chernobyl, which to me is one of the one of the well, I, I, we codified this at Vulture. It's one of the best limited series that uh, HBO ever did. And, and you can see a lot of uh, the same signposts. I mean, because, you know, with Chernobyl, it's in actual real life. You know, you have this zone that becomes unoccupied and, and things grow, grow over it and uh, things rot and nature takes over. And in the look of Chernobyl and the look of some of The Last of Us is just so uncannily similar and, and resonant in the same way. They really are fascinating to kind of consider as a duo. Although I, it feels like there are elements of uh, annihilation in there as well, just in the fecundity. Yeah, especially like the way the infected look like when they're done. That shot, I believe it's in the first episode, maybe the second of the the infected kind of like that's become part of the wall. Just mm. looked like a shot straight out of Annihilation. Yeah, I mean, I, I know I'm not alone in this, but fungi and moss and these kind of things really mm -hmm. kind of give me the willies yeah. in, in a way that, that the show exploits really well, especially when you get the, the infected who are like more mushroom than man or whatever <laughs> yeah. you want to describe it. Yeah, I never played the game myself, but I watched a couple different people play the game. I'm I'm, I'm a video game watcher more 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 than a player. You watch? You were on Twitch? Were you doing this on Twitch? No, no, no. <laughs> I, I I I've not uh, yet made that made that leap. But just like the the people in my life who play video games, I I enjoy watching them play. And it's, in Last of Us, those two games are extremely pardon me, Scott, but they are extremely cinematic video games, and then they were okay. uh, uh, you know uh, kind of designed to be that way. So they were uh, you know well well primed to make the jump to television i think it's a little hilarious that uh you you feel that maybe the the biggest pure cinephile you know uh <laughs> would resent video games being compared to movies whereas the big you know as somebody who works at polygon the biggest video game people i know really resent it when movies are compared to video games hmm. well i should get into the whole adaptation video yeah. game adaptation thing which i think uh, it's there aren't many that i know that are as successful as this but i think it's partly because you know, there's such, such an emphasis on narrative in The Last of Us, not to disparage other games, but I think it's the because the, there's other games that they're as narrative forward as Last of Us, but I think it's really the first of those I know to make this kind of leap to a, another medium. And you know, certainly the first to do it as, as smoothly as this. And uh, oddly in part because it's so true to the game, which it doesn't really have to change the story beats that much. The third episode being the big exception, yeah. and it is the best episode of the series, but I don't, I wouldn't call it the best episode because it departs from the game. I, I, but I do think, I think it's, I've been thinking of that third episode a lot because it's, it's extraordinary. We should get into it, but I've seen the whole series and, and you never, it never gets, it never gets quite to that emotional mm -hmm. level, but I think 
I think it kind of deepens the whole series, that episode. But anyway. You saw the yeah. whole series, Keith? I have seen yeah. the whole series, yeah. So have I. And I I saw early screeners back in December of this uh, show. And episode three is the one that made me start like messaging people. For, like, like this show, people are going to lose their minds over this show. <laughs> you, mm-hmm. you know, like we need to pre- we need to start preparing. This is my job, you know. Um, yeah. but, and I think it's also when I reached out to you, Keith, and I'm like, you know, you you need to check this out because yeah. that third episode is, you know, a really great encapsulation of what this show does and kind of as you say never does quite this well again, but to what Tasha was saying about it just like repeating the beats of of children of men, like yes, but it does it episodically and it takes advantage of its sprawl and it allows itself to dig into other elements of the story and like find a story within things that are just sort of a plot beat within the larger game. And like Bill and Frank are a really short part of the game we don't even see frank you know in the the game he's just he's already gone by the time that we uh learn of his existence so the fact that the show was willing and eager so early in its run to dig into such a small part and make it its own thing in this new medium was really exciting to me and you know, without spoiling things, I'll agree with Keith that I don't think it ever quite gets back to that, but it comes really close, I think, m- many times. Mm-hmm. And there are other really standout episodes, like the fifth being an- another one. I mean, I don't necessarily mean that, that to disparage the other episodes. I feel like this kind of it, it shows you at what emotional level this series is operating. And if it, you know, if it's never quite at that pitch again, you know it's, but you still understand that that's what it's doing. It felt like the apex of this as an adaptation exercise, like what, mm-hmm. how, how to make this the same thing, but different. How to confidently fill in the corners of the world without right. losing the core of the story. Keith called out Pedro Pascal and, and uh, Bella Ramsey as kind of the, the center of all this, but I don't want to undersell the writing here. I think their performances are both tremendous, but I think the care, like the sprawl that Genevieve's talking about, doesn't just involve like building out these ancillary characters into more more fully fledged creations and and telling bigger stories with them. It also just extends into giving their relationship space to develop. I mean, I I think that's Key and Theo's relationship in in Children of Men never really develops very much because they're they're perpetually in crisis. They're constantly on the go. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that Last of Us does that I think is interesting is takes the time to show us what it would be like to be in a situation where you're kind of forced together by circumstance. Maybe neither of you really want to be there, but you're together for so long that your relationship can develop kind of organically. And how hard it is to keep somebody at arm's length when they're in your life and when they're the only other person in your life. I, I just I think that the character work here, again, Keith also talked about like the narrative forwardness of the show, but I think the character forwardness of the show is what makes it really interesting for me. I love in the fourth episode the sort of evolution of the relation central relationship uh, through puns. I knew through, it. I through, was waiting. Through, <laughs> through, I was like, when can we bring up puns, the puns? The, the, yeah. That was a, the, that the I, the pun uh, the scarecrow pun was one that uh, I had 
somehow never heard before and i heard it first like oh, just wow. last week from my daughter who was just like on a tear she found some website that just is nothing but jokes like that and so i heard the one about the scarecrow winning an award because uh it was uh, outstanding in its field um <laughs> which i just thought was great so it was, it was good to see that they plucked that quality joke and, and uh out and uh, put it in this show as somebody who's basically a professional dad joke, bad joke, pun maker, Scott, I am really surprised at you laying down on the job like this. <laughs> I, I do all original stuff, Tasha. <laughs> Joe! What? Can I ask you a serious question? Yeah. Why did the Scarecrow get an award? Because he was outstanding in his field. <laughs> you dick! Did you read this? No. I'll go to sleep. One of the things that speaks to that I really love about the character of Ellie and Bella Ramsey's performance is how, at least in these early episodes, she is still allowed to be a kid, you know, and that really comes out again in the, the fifth episode and the uh, sort of relationship she has with Sam, poor Sam. And again, I'm not going to like get into spoilers from the game, but I think it's pretty obvious that Ellie is a character who's been through a lot and is going to go through a lot more and becomes hardened over time. But like getting to kind of spend time with her in this like, you know, kind of still nascent stage where she is, there are still glimmers of her, her innocence, her, you know, her being a child, you know, and Bella Ramsey's like, 18, 19, like she's an adult now, but she is just able to channel that youthfulness. I mean, she is objectively young, but she is able to, I think it's not even just that she's able to channel, channel, she's able to go back and forth between the two modes that character needs very smoothly. I think that's what really brings Pedro Pascal's character around on her too is that recognition of uh, that recognition that she is a child that she you know not only in just some certain behavioral moments but also in the things that she has to witness you know and there's a mm-hmm. there's a once you get to that Kansas City arc uh, the, of episodes four and five you know there's that wall that he wants her to sort of hide behind when while they're while he's taking care of all of the all the shooting and and all the all the death and and you know it gets to a point where she can't be behind that wall anymore that she has to take action and uh and she has to in in then and in other places has to witness things that a child should not witness and i think that you know pulls at him and he's you know he he has a he had a daughter you know i mean that that's nothing that's a part of his life that he can't that he w- wishes he could forget but of course he can't and i think this you know this is i guess you know it's the cliche of of the grizzled dude being uh and the heartwarming orphan but it uh i think the show really earns it yeah maybe that's it is that most of the movies that i've seen that play on that particular dynamic kind of don't feel like they earn it. They go for the cheap sentiment. They go for the the fast change, the fast relationship. And this show, I think, just really plays maybe the most interesting thing that it's doing is the way it's playing with his his kind of juggling. She's an object that I'm moving across the country versus 
she's a replacement for the daughter I lost versus she's a partner in adversity that is capable of doing what needs to be done. You know, his his shifting ideas of who she is from scene to scene and how she responds to that, you know, sometimes as a precocious kid who's well past her age and who's experienced a lot. And sometimes as like a little kid who's just like excited to be accepted or excited to be respected. Or excited I, I, to be in a car for the first time. Or excited to be in a car uh, or a mall or just outside of a city. I've never seen someone so excited to put on a seatbelt. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's really complicated. And uh, all of the stuff that I like about it, I think, is is found within that complexity. Well, okay, that and the, the design of the mushroom people, because that is some creepy, creepy stuff. While we're talking about tropes, maybe let's kind of talk about the not zombie aesthetics of this. And uh, I was really struck on on rewatch how long we go between sort of infected, you know, attacks or just any interaction, a direct interaction with the infected between episodes two and five, you know. But there is a a scene in episode five prior to that, like involving tunnels that I feel is very much playing on our expectations mm-hmm. of what would happen in a, a zombie movie. They're, they're not zombies, but they're zombies. They're totally zombies. <laughs> yeah. And then it doesn't do that. And I feel like there's a lot of sort of that sort of defying of expectations when it comes to certain beats that we associate with horror storytelling and zombie stories in, in particular. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I may have made that same observation in my recap for Vulture. <laughs> but the other thing is that with episode five, as long as we're talking about, is like in these type of stories, the cute kids don't die. You know, it just, yeah. doesn't, just, doesn't, just doesn't happen, you know? And like it's kind of an a, a, a homage to that moment in Night of the Living Dead uh, when the kid, you know, kills your mom with a garden trowel. Spoiler for Night of the Living Dead. Um, but we never actually know that kid at all. And Sam, you know, we get to know the whole hour is dedicated to getting to know Sam and Henry. And, and the way that episode ends, it's just so brutal. It's a blow. Yeah, my memory of the game was fuzzy to the point where I was like, oh, yeah, I think they do team up for a little bit, don't they? Oh, <laughs> no, interesting. Like, not. Though there are moments, there are so many moments, particularly in the early episodes, where you're just like, okay, this is so much a game moment, you know, where, where just like you get to a certain like tableau or something. And it's one of those moments where, you know, you're in the middle of like a cut scene and now it's time to take action. You know, it's like I was thinking about like how they drive up to the blocked tunnel in mm-hmm. Kansas City and it's just like, okay, this is when this is when the game would get you to this point and then you've <laughs> got to get out and explore and potentially get attacked or whatever it is you're gonna do. It, it felt so much like that. And there's so many scenes in the show that that feel like that you know i mean there's there there are like direct replications of cutscenes, uh in especially in the premiere the whole uh truck sequence as they are fleeing in in joel's truck is pretty much shot for shot from how that cutscene plays out in the game yeah 
That's interesting. I mean, it's it, I mean, it's interesting, and it, it it definitely it works. But it is there are times where it seems a little bit conspicuously based on a game, and it, to, to the mm-hmm. point where I almost I wonder if I if I didn't know that it was a game adaptation, if it would strike me as like, hey, that's kind of gamey the way they did that. Well, because there's there's <laughs> yeah. like there's like loot moments, you know, where talking about like there's trading guns and you know getting ammo, and there's just sort of like these allusions to video game mechanics here and there, right? Um, right. Yeah, but there's also a uh, very familiar video game like, okay, I got a shotgun. We can relax. Oh, I've lost the shotgun. Uh, yeah. Crap. Now we have to gain a new gun. Oh, I've got a sniper rifle. That's an upgrade. Oh, wait, I'm out of bullets for the sniper rifle. They're not that common. Mm-hmm. I don't think I would identify this as a video game adaptation if I didn't already know, though. And it's in part just because of that third episode, which is it's just it's not about action beats. You know, mm-hmm. it's not about how are we going to fight the zombies or like what what cool stuff are we going to set up to fight the zombies it's about a relationship and how people change over time and that's just something you don't really tend to get a lot of in horror video games if it were um there's i think the video game stuff it's like it's there if you want to see it like the fact that in the fifth episode where they have the they find the comic books where the comic books are a collectible item (laughs) in the game if it were a real reflection of my experience of playing the game would be like you know, Joel and Ellie go to a workbench and then like try to fiddle around crafting things, and and they're like, "Oh, I don't, I don't have the ingredients I need. I guess I'll just use my pistol to get out of this after all." Uh, but perhaps that would not be as 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 compelling to watch. Yeah, I mean, I guess it takes what it needs. But I mean, I think the bottom line for me with this show is that, it, and it's epitomized by that third episode is that the world building part of it is so exceptional. I mean, just both you know, in the sense that it's giving you all these different environments. But also that it's that it just is showing you so many such a range of human experience. I mean, this is this is a lived in world in itself. I mean, it has been 20 years since this since this infection happened and the world has changed dramatically. But also people are living in it and they they have jobs. Uh, they have relationships. There are different there. there are t- it's 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 a bleak life. But but there are moments of humor and humanity. And, and it just has that. It's unpredictable, you know, and I think I think you you look at, a, a, you know, it seemed to me, you know, at least the, the stretch I watched of a show like The Walking Dead, where it's like, well, this is just feels like I'm kind of just doing the same sort of thing. You know, every episode, it doesn't feel like it has that kind of versatility and versatility is like a really important part of the show. Yeah, agreed. I read all of the Walking Dead comic, which meant I tuned out of the show really pretty early because it was just following the same dynamic. And the the comic was just perpetually locked in the cycle of like, we go to a new place, we take the new place over, we meet some new survivors, we settle down, everything's calm for a while, and then something goes wrong and the zombies break in. We lose some of our legacy characters. We lose some of the new characters. We go to a new place. We settle down. We meet new people over and over and over. And it got really boring. And the fact that this show can can make time for like, here are a bunch of different communities that have lasted or have not lasted, but for reasons that you wouldn't expect and that take a little time to be revealed, like... It's much less about and then the zombies are coming and much more about the stability of like, how do we find refuge after that's happened long after that's happened, which I kind of feel like is an underexplored aspect of zombie stories. Well, I I think that idea of like what finding the proper approach to governance in a post-apocalyptic world is something it shares uh, the the series shared with Children of Men. So I think we're going to take a short break here and then we're going to come back with connections uh, talking about the, the ways in which The Last of Us 
and children of men reflect one another. Take your bandage off. Look, Joel. This is real. Josh is fucking real. I need you to get her to Bill and Frank's. No. They'll take her off your hands. No. They'll handle it from here. No, 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 I can't. They yeah. won't take her. They're they not going to take they her. They will, because you'll convince them. Yes, you will. I, I never ask you for anything, not to feel the way I felt, no. not to, will you shut the fuck up, because I don't have time. This is your chance. You get her there. You keep her alive. And you said everything right. Now it's time for connections when we bring these two projects together and talk about all the things they have in common. Well, Itachi, you've you kicked things off by saying, you know, pointing out there it does share a lot. I, I think, you know, and, and Druckmann's been, you know, pretty open about the debt that that the game owed to uh Children of Men and also mentioned things like Why the Last Man and you know, Cordyceps <laughs> fungi itself as inspiration. <laughs> from a, from because, a Planet Earth episode. Oh yeah, was it? Okay. Well, yep. here's here's the thing. I, you know, you Google cordyceps, people eat, it's sold as health food. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah, there's yeah. like a health supplement or whatever. Like, you know, I'm not, I'm not after watching this show, there's no way I put that in my body. <laughs> you don't know what's going to happen. I don't know. That feels a little like uh, after watching Jaws, I'm never going to swim in the ocean again. You know, you're, you are specifically watching a, uh, a, a narrative that is a fantasy. Well, here's the thing. I was going in the ocean before watching Jaws. I was not consuming fungi. <laughs> Well, that's fair. Okay, you don't have to start consuming cordyceps because of the show. Is it the secret to eternal life, though? <laughs> it could, well, who knows? Me. I mean, are, do people who uh, do the do the infected? Do they? Can, there are, are they, different types of cordyceps. Die? Would they guys. die if no one didn't, didn't kill them? <laughs> uh, okay. Well, we, that's a whole. We're sidetracking here. Think, are we? If, if you're uh, if you're scared of cordyceps, can I uh, suggest the explainer that Roxana Haddadi, a friend of the show, wrote oh. over at Vulture? Um, oh, I'll check to, that out. To ease your mind about cordyceps, if not the broader world of infectious fungi. <laughs> if we were to sidetrack some more, I, I was in the movie, you know, I saw the movie EO and I Googled it and there really is such a thing as donkey sausage. Uh, and I just don't, <laughs> now I was kind of disturbed to find that out. But we were we were kind of talking about how both these, uh, both the, both Last of Us and uh, Children of Men are interested in like, you know, what's the proper way to, to govern in, in a post-apocalyptic world? And uh, I think one thing, I mean, we'll, we'll see this more as the series goes on, but Last of Us is kind of a tour of different theories of human mm-hmm. existence in some ways. Uh, Children of Men, I think, is fairly narrowly focused on totalitarianism and its uh, and its problems uh, here as, as well. I mean, do you see that as a, as a strong connection between the two these two items? I mean, one of the big parallels that I see as as far as the kind of the government and the rulership goes is that sense of there are ne- there aren't necessarily villains per se. Uh, there are just a lot of very compromised people. Kathleen in episode five, the leader of the rebellion who that that took Kansas City, who's like pursuing this very personal vendetta where she wants to to murder a man and a child because of something that happened to her family. I feel like episode five just veers back and forth over and over between sympathy with her and just excoriating her like she's she's the villain, but she's not a very black and white villain. 
Like mm-hmm. she, her, her desperation, her, her bitterness, her longing, uh, the, the regime that she overthrew all kind of justify to some degree how she feels, but perhaps not how she acts. And I just feel like there's a real parallel there with Luke and the choices that he makes as the eventual leader of his rebellion. Also striking back against a kind of a horrible totalitarian uh, boot on the throat kind of kind of organization, but also making some horrible compromise decisions that hurt other people or that kill other people because he has an ideal in mind that he wants to live up to. And I feel like that that manner of, you know, not not doing a Hunger Games, here is your ultimate villain. And once you kill him, the whole system will come crashing neatly down the kind of situation that a single hero can address. Having this kind of everything's complicated uh, scenario is something that they both share and maybe something that makes them both a little, a little more cynical and a little sadder, you know, because there isn't a, a place for oh, like a bullet or a fist to solve these problems. They're, they're institutional and they're built into humanity, which makes the stories a lot richer and a lot more sadly believable in a way, but, you know, also much less uh, superhero satisfying. There's a lot of kind of one-to-one kind of character connections mm-hmm. in this on the show between you know pedro pascal and and uh clive owen's characters are very similar kind of uh bruised idealist types and uh, as you mentioned uh, luke too much easier for in um children of men and in uh, melanie linsky's character in the last of us and then of course you know the <laughs> julianne moore mm-hmm. and anna tor yeah. and, and uh, you know who's just we get another shocking you know death of a care of a recognizable actor who we expect to be you know in the show a whole lot longer than she is so so there those one-on-one connections are pretty also strong. one with a, a romantic connection to our our male protagonist lead uh, yes they're really really close but but as far as like the politics of it i, I think that both shows are probably are, are smart in kind of recognizing that when there is uh, some sort of catastrophe of this scale there is a desire for order to be restored and in in the in and that becomes kind of a a christatunity for authoritarian (laughs) forces to kind of come rushing into that void of saying okay we'll take over we've got this you know we're going to be the ones to set up the quarantine zones and we're going to be the ones who set up the refugee camps and you know and uh and of course it's uh, it all is is uh becomes you know over the top and kind of a police state and and i think the show is kind of smart about those two things and smart about uh, they, of course, they're very similar in terms of the the resistance to, to that as well, and and uh, and how there's an idealistic element to it, and also and also a certain corruptive possibility there, as well. An opportunistic element as well. Yeah, for sure. I think it's interesting that you know the especially in Last of Us the you know the areas we visit of you know, where humans are crowded together are more dangerous <laughs> than than the wilds teeming with infected usually. Like it, it's, there's a feeling that kind of the more humanity you pack into a space, the higher the probability is <laughs> that things are going to go bad, you know, just for, you know, these, these reasons that we're talking about. And that's kind of similar to Children of Men and the whole Brexel outpost, you know, prison camp of whatever you want to call it. And so it's just sort of like shunting the last gasps of humanity into these horrible sequestered spaces just like brings out the worst in them. One of horror's favorite longtime themes has always been, you know, the real monsters were us all along. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, there's that, that assumption uh, that your neighbor or your fellow citizen is your enemy. Um, uh, you know, there's never any there's never any thought that the per, that the stranger that you're going to meet is going to be well intentioned, <laughs> uh, and uh, and it takes a great deal of effort for them to wear down your defenses. Again, you know, judging by the third episode of The Last of Us. The relationship between Bill and Frank and then Bill and Joel, I mean, Bill takes a while <laughs> to warm to the, to, to, and he never quite entirely warms to, to Joel, though. It, it's such a Nick Offerman role. It's weird to think that anybody could, uh, he, they, they could have even thought of some, anybody else because it is, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a Ron Swanson character. It's like gay, gay Ron Swanson. Um, but it's also uh, like vulnerable in a way that we don't really, I've never really seen Offerman do uh, before he's I was soft, very very impressed. On Parks and Rec, I know, though, but, but like, but like, like when when Frank is leaning in to kiss him for the first time, he just looks like a teenage boy. Yeah, he's like all <laughs> terrified. Yeah. Not, yeah, yeah. Again, not not the same character. I'm just saying it's not. It's in the. No, it's in the ballpark. I, I, was, I was excited to see his, the 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 range uh, in in that element, the, that aspect of it. You know, I, mean, I certainly didn't recognize Murray Bartlett as from from the White uh, White Lotus. That was. Oh, that's wow, really? stunning. Welcome to Chippendale Star, Murray Bartlett. <laughs> he's had a lot of yeah. good stuff lately. Looking yeah, Star. Terrific. Come on. Going back to looking, guys. Yeah. <laughs> oh, right. He's good. Before we get too far away from like one-to-one story parallels, uh, I, I would like to loop back to the fact that both of our protagonists here are older men who ha- had a child and lost that child mm-hmm. and connect with a younger woman in part because of a like a parental response. I think maybe Theo is feeling a little more ter- parental towards Key's child than to Key herself, mm-hmm. whereas you know Joel is, is seeing uh, Ellie more as kind of a not a not a replacement for his child, but is experiencing some of that paternal uh, drive towards her. But in both cases, you have you have men. I guess I'm always sort of fascinated with uh, stories about men who lose children and are wrecked by it, as opposed to the really, really popular and, and beloved idea of the man who loses a child and or his wife and like goes on a, a rampage because of it. You know, I lost my family like Mad Max style, and therefore I'm justified in killing anybody and everybody I want. Like, like right down to the Taken model. There's just such a long history of what's really as much of a, a kind of dark wish fulfillment for fantasy as zombie stories themselves are like, what if I was freed up of all of the trappings of, of family and domesticity and could just go shoot anybody I want? <laughs> and here instead, we have men who can kind of shoot anybody they want, but it, it's, it's not a wish fulfillment of fantasy. It's not something that we watch with sort of a secret glee of like how freeing and escapist it would be to be in their shoes. You have just very broken down, sad, tragic men specifically who've both lost children and in the process, like lost their lives. And then they're finding these reasons to go on because of other people who need their protection. And to continue the one-to-one connections are kind of dragged, almost kicking and screaming to Mm -hmm. that realization by the woman (laughs) in their life who dies uh, shortly after imparting that realization onto them. (laughs) I got to say... If you had to choose a way to die, I think I'd go out like Julian Moore in Children of Men versus Anna Torben in uh, The Last of Us. Ooh, yeah, I French kiss in a mushroom is just is not how I want to go out. Ooh, Depends on the mushroom. Some people really like. I, I like sauteed. mushrooms. I, I don't like them mushroom. that way. 
you're you're just really the apologist for horror tonight, Scott. You know, it's uh, you know, murder murder is okay if it beats your ideals. Uh, infecting somebody with your horrible mushroom virus through mouth to mouth unresuscitation is fine because mushrooms are good. Like well, you make it sound bad, Tasha. <laughs> Once again, I'm not joining your political movement. <laughs> Maybe this is a good time to touch on another uh, connection, which is gallows humor. <laughs> and I feel like we already like uh, kind of dug in. We don't need to spend too much time on it because we already kind of dug into the humor of, of children of men uh, pretty uh, significantly in the first half. And I think Last of Us it doesn't have quite as much the pun, pun book aside. It, it is, mm. I, I'd say, overall a little bleaker. But I don't know. Do you guys? Do, are you seeing any other glimmers of humor uh, outside of sort of the Ellie Joel, you know, awkwardness around each other? There, there are definite little moments. There's the Gilligan cut of uh, Ellie saying, "Yeah, I'm, I'm not tired." Like, cut immediately to her passed out cold yeah, in the car. That's true. You know, just uh, those, or when she said Joel has moments. asshole voice. That's funny. <laughs> yes. And Lady, when she, when she like kind of starts roasting him uh, yeah. about how, uh, but right before the gunfire breaks out, yeah. like the last moment of levity in that episode. Well, <laughs> like, and I guess episode three has a, a a fair amount of you know sort of. Funny moments and sweet moments between Bill and Frank, but uh, the the Arby's exchange of well, they don't give food away at Arby's; it's a restaurant. Yeah, restaurant. <laughs> and that is a really 40. good exchange. Well, I also love Nick Offerman holding a gun on on, on Joel. Yeah, <laughs> but but the next episode, you you, you have an Arby's. Like, is this is this SpawnCon? Is like Arby's like <laughs> fast food the post apocalypse? That roast beef might survive uh, anything. Oh God, beef. Chef Boyardee seems to have survived. At least. <laughs> There's also a, a pretty specific thread of undercutting Joel's angst humor. You know, there's there's a little bit of Mal Reynolds from Firefly in him mm. in that, yes. you know, he's he's carrying around this burden and he's a little a tiny bit of a blowhard and a, a, a whole lot of, of sad sack. But every now and then something will happen in the environment around him, often involving Ellie, but but sometimes it's other things. It kind of undercuts that solemn, sad dignity that he has and just makes him look a little bit silly. And it's a resetting of the stakes around him every time. And it's it's funny every time. And, and that was a big go-to uh, point of humor for Firefly. In, in that same sort of sense, I think one of the big connections here is that Pedro Pascal and Clive Owen are both exceedingly good at just like the the wounded eyes kind of thing. Like both of them are kind of playing these characters who, you know, maybe Theo is a little more used to fast talking his way through situations. And Joel is a little more used to remaining silent through situations. But both of them have the same kind of just like very bruised masculinity, like very bruised, sad humanity that comes from that kind of past to damage. And I think both of them just have faces that really reflect well uh, the the weight of what they their characters have been through. And they both just do a lot with their faces uh, and their and their bodies, their physicality in terms of acting. like there's there's not a whole lot of verbal self-pity from either of them or, or even verbal explanations of like who they are and how they feel. You just you get so much from Clive Owen's face as he's refilling his uh, whiskey flask 
while inadvertently overhearing Michael Caine's character, Jasper, telling his story, telling Theo's story, the story of how he and Julian had a child and lost it. He he says nothing. Theo says nothing in that scene. Clive Owen's performance, like just physically as he's standing in another room listening, has to sell it all. And Pedro Pascal ends up doing a lot of the same kind of thing where, you know, somebody's holding a gun on him or he's he's in a fight or he's trying to go to sleep in between things or, you know, he's facing whatever the next exhausting crisis is. And Pedro Pascal's just like sorrow really comes through on his face without without him having to be wordy or verbal about it at all. And I think it's sort of uh, like counterbalances like the just inherent badassery of Joel <laughs> to, to, to bring out that that sadness. Because, I mean, comparing Joel and Theo, like Joel is far more equipped for this mission just in terms of the skills, uh, the, the certain set of skills he possesses that Theo does not. I mean, he's a he's a drunk. He's you know, he used to be an activist, but we don't have any like sense that he, you know, knows his way around a gun, for uh, example, you know. Um, but I mean, Joel is, I mean, he's a, he's a video game protagonist. I mean, he's kind of like, objectively speaking, a quote unquote badass, but that is so tempered by Pascal's performance. There's like no sense that you should like feel glee or excitement watching him do these terrible things. You know, it's just, there's this heavy, heavy layer of sadness over everything and despair over everything that I think takes away any sort of like gleeful feeling that might come with the violence associated with the character. It's because there's no swagger to either of them. You know, there's there's no like sense of ego, really. And I think instead what you get is just sort of a beaten down doggedness to both Mm -hmm. of them. Like there's a world of difference between Theo you know, barefoot running down that hill, trying to get that car to pop start uh, as he's trying to get Key and Miriam away from the the fish's compound. And Joel up there in that sniper window in episode five, Mm -hmm. like protecting Ellie over and over and over again by killing whatever has gotten closest to her. But in both cases, they're refusing to give up, like in the face of what seems like just completely ridiculous, impossible odds. They're they're doggedly charging forward. You see it again in Theo when he navigates that the climactic one take scene, like he's terrified uh, the entire time and he's never in control of that situation, but he still keeps pressing forward. And that's that's just something you kind of see over and over with both of them in these stories. Yeah, I think I think it was you, Tasha, brought it, raised a question with with uh, Children of Men is like, or raised the issue that is telling that Theo hasn't given up. I think it's telling that Joel hasn't given up. It's like, what are, the, what are these guys living for? Maybe they, maybe they don't know yet, but they know that they want to live for something. And, and this is kind of what gives them a reason to keep on going. And in both of these stories, uh, you know, controlled suicide, planned suicide is available and is a thing that that some people take the opportunity for. You know, both of these movies have... Sometimes it's your time to die, and then you take the you take the pills, you take the drink, uh, kind of things going on, and both of them are very sorrowful about it. But neither of them comes across as saying it's the wrong choice. So you know, in a world that accepts euthanasia or accepts suicide as something that you just sometimes have to do, the fact that both of them are pressing forward is uh, you know even more significant. I think. One one little note I was thinking about with Pascal's performance is that, you know, we, we do see him 20 years apart as a 
character from we do see him, him when it first when this uh outbreak first happened and and uh and i think the the show doesn't bother too much to play with effects and make in de-age or age or anything like that that much i think i think there's a reliance on pascal's performance to suggest the weight himself in his performance and to suggest that time has passed and that he has changed and all that feels very very natural much more natural than 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 going heavy you know on the effects makeup he's a little grayer in 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 the the main timeline of the show Joel is 36 when the show opens and 56 through most of the, in the main uh, time frame of it. Um, Pascal, I think it's 46. So he's kind of splitting, <laughs> splitting the difference. But he also has like, he also is one of those people that could like be in his 30s or his 50s. You know, I mean, obviously the best looking version of, of <laughs> any person at 36 or 56. But, but you know, he's kind of hard to pick down that way. I guess we should just briefly acknowledge the fact that Pascal also brings with him uh, another very notable paternal (laughs) sci-fi role. (laughs) Uh, And, you know, I I don't think there's many other connections between this and and the Mandalorian. But, you know, that that dynamic between Mandalorian and and child is uh, not wholly removed from the one between Joel and Ellie. There is also just at the at the end of the first season of Mandalorian, uh, spoilers ahead for those who haven't seen it, there's the moment when his helmet first comes off, you know, which is a, a big no-no to him culturally, personally, religiously. And when Pedro Pascal's face is first revealed, not only does he seem just so much younger than at least I would have interpreted uh, based on how that character was playing, like he he looks just so much more human. And again, it's that that just kind of like the weight of suffering and the weight of burden that you see on his face in that moment is is really moving. And for somebody who's spent the entire <laughs> first season under wraps, I think it's just a really important moment when you first see his face. And it's something that I think would have been pretty hard to pull off. And again, could have been very wordy and explanatory. Or you could just like look at Pedro Pascal's face and see exactly how stressful and awful this moment is for him. He's good. And funny, too. You know, and, yeah. uh, and, he's you a know, goofball he, in real life. He, like if you watch yeah. interviews with him, he's a total goof uh which makes it even more fun to, yeah, to watch really his performance void of massive talent well yeah too. i was just gonna say the uh the movie we, we just talked about him not too long ago and that yeah yeah it's, it's, it's a full time it's, it's the the pedro cast that's, 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 what, we're, <laughs> that's what we're moving toward eventually i mean i love both of the the male leads in these two stories but uh we we should loop back to the fact that the these are basically both eve stories you know mm-hmm. they are basically both stories about a young woman's body holds the hope for the future you know which is just very symbolically blah 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 the fecundity of uh, youth and nubile young women bearing the responsibility for continuing the species and on all that sort of stuff but i don't know is there is there more to it than that I, it's it's not necessarily my favorite theme I had to break it to you, Tasha, that, that literally nubile young women are what <laughs> No, no, but that's that's for. what I mean, is that in both of these stories, we're, we're finding kind of like symbolic constructs to to tap into like just this very real dynamic yeah. of like, yeah. that's where babies come from, y'alls. I hate to tell you that. A spoiler for those of you who don't have babies yet. <laughs> I, I love the health class. Let's just turn this into health class. Let's do it. <laughs> so I think Children of Ben is like, 
very straightforward about that Eve thing. Even Mary, you yeah. know, kind of wrapped well, the Oh, line. yeah, yeah, for sure. Oh, there's a bit of humor that we didn't touch on at all. Like that moment where uh, he claims oh, that she's a, a yeah. virgin. She's got a virgin birth. <laughs> and then she just like laughs her ass off at uh, Theo's yeah. response. I, I don't even know who some of those wank, the wank, half of the wankers names or whatever she says. So like he as sort of the the savior of humanity is is very straightforward in Children of, of Men. I feel it's less straightforward with Ellie in that it is unknown how she is the key to this. Like there's that opening or actually the first and second episodes kind of establish like there isn't a cure for this, you know, like it's, and then in the fifth episode, there's that devastating uh, moment where she like tries to save Sam with her blood, you know, like the expectation, like my blood will heal you. And it doesn't, you know, there whatever is going on with Ellie, there's another key or several more keys that need or or several more locks that need to be unlocked before humanity can be saved. So there's just like, I feel like the the burden of hope is even greater in this case, because it's like, well, how does this work? You know, it's, it's not like she is just like giving birth to a child in a context where that doesn't happen anymore. She is, there's something in her, but we don't know what it is. We don't know how to harvest it. We don't know how to utilize it to help the the broader populace yet. So it's a little more complicated in Ellie's case. Only a little bit though, because <laughs> Key is not going to be able to repopulate the planet by herself. Sure. There's, there's the question of whether whatever caused her to be able to have a child is, uh, you know, pardon the word, reproducible. It, it's much more about, you know, there's uh, blah 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 again. The the symbolism of the the woman's body is mysterious, and the woman's ways are mysterious. Like again, not not a beloved trope for me. But in both cases, what we're kind of looking at here is just like a very age old idea about like women's bodies being this mysterious uh, font of life that we we don't necessarily know how they work or why they work why they work the way they do. But but they bring they might bring us all life. Yeah, but in Ellie's case, it's not specific to her being female, you know. That is true. So, you know, she is, and that is obviously uh, the the trope at play and and why we we think of that. But, you know, I don't think it is necessarily the story is making a broader comment about, uh, you know, how, how women can save humanity specifically, you know, as opposed to this specific female character. That is fair, although in the way that uh, like the whole YA craze took off, basically built mostly around stories about teenage girls, mm-hmm. because teenage girls are seen as more vulnerable than teenage boys. Yeah. I, I think that her gender is important here just because there would be a really interesting dynamic with uh, you know Joel and a kind of foster son, but there would be a lot, a lot of very different uh, symbolism there in terms of yeah, I don't know, teaching him how to be a man in the world versus the kind of like protective father thing that he's got going on here. Yeah, he might not have uh, gotten rid of that magazine that was in the truck. <laughs> <laughs> or wait, no, he probably would have actually. <laughs> well, I, I don't want to wrap up this discussion before bringing up the most important connection, even more so than the new Eve trope, uh, which is strawberries. <laughs> They're very important in the third episode of Last of Us. And of course, Strawberry cough is is Jasper's go to conversation starter. So uh, that that was what stood out to me most. I don't know about you guys. 
I will say that the Last of Us made me appreciate. You know, I think I've probably taken strawberries for granted. Like I like, I like strawberries, but imagine if I could never have strawberries again. That would that would be a big bummer. I'm seriously thinking about growing strawberries in my backyard this summer, specifically because of that sequence. Hmm. I, I do grow strawberries in my backyard. I'm very excited about it. But but actually, I, I said that as a joke. But now that I say it, I realize that Jasper was also cultivating a crop <laughs> in the same way that uh, that Frank was. Uh, and they were both strawberry, just different types of, of strawberry. So not just cultivating a crop, but cultivating a crop that he's passing on to other people, mm-hmm. uh, like joyously giving them this gift of like this thing that he developed and grew himself that he's very proud of. And there's there's more than a tiny bit of parallel there, I think. Well, see, my, my, my silly connection is more poignant than than even I thought. I love it. I love it when that happens. Well, wind it down with one one question here. True or false, strawberries or berries? Um, wait. Well, it can't possibly be true if you you're even asking. I phrase it. I phrase leadingly. Yeah, they are not. They're not. They're not. They're not berries. They're they're called pseudocarps, which is a multiple fruit that consists. I'm quoting here uh, of uh, many uh, tiny individual fruits embedded in a fleshy receptacle. The real question, I think, is, is strawberry cough a vegetable? (laughs) Or sorry, is strawberry cough a berry? (laughs) No, it's a vegetable. Okay, there we go. See, I well, also botched the uh, the delivery on that. So there's a there's a parallel that we hadn't explored yet. I think that is a good point on which to end. Uh, the Last of Us is currently airing on HBO and streaming on HBO Max. Children of Men is available through the usual rental services and on Blu-ray and DVD. And we'll be back after a moment with your next picture show. Finally, it's time to recommend a film or film-related item that complements this set of episodes. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it will put some interesting choices on your radar. Genevieve, I understand you have something for us. Uh, yes. Uh, not a film, I'm, I'm sorry to say, but we've already broken format, so I think I can uh, safely recommend a, another television series or a miniseries, one that has been brought up many times, including by you, Keith, in relation to uh, The Last of Us, uh, which is Station Eleven, the 20, 2021 miniseries based on the novel by Emily St. John Mandel. I feel like it, there's a great likelihood that anyone listening to this has probably already watched Station Eleven. I, I hope you have. But if not, it's a really good companion piece to Last of Us in that it is, again, about a story that takes place 20 years after a a pandemic, in this case, that uh, takes out large swaths of humanity and it sort of follows the the survivors in this case a sort of a traveling a troop of traveling performers uh, that's sort of the backbone of the series but uh, specific to the last of us it is uh, a, again sort of a older man younger, girl uh, pairing that uh, in this case kind of takes shape in the at the beginning of the pandemic. And the story is kind of following them after they have separated from each other. Haimish Patel plays Jivan, who's the adult in the scenario, uh, who kind of takes Kirsten played as a child by Matilda Lawler under his 
protection as the world falls apart and we kind of get, you know, tastes of their time together over the course of the series. But then we also jump ahead 20 years to uh, Mackenzie Davis playing Kirsten and it follows them separately uh, 20 years later and in a way that it becomes very moving. And I don't want to to spoil the, the specific beats of, but I think if you gravitate toward the Joel and Ellie relationship, you will uh, find sort of similar emotional beats happening in the relationship between Jivan and Kirsten. Um, and it's also just... I'd say overall, it's a less bleak series than The Last of Us, even though it is, you know, <laughs> again, most of humanity has has been wiped out. But there is sort of a backbone of like how stories and art get us through tough times and like kind of help define us when our humanity threatens to leave us. That's what ties Javon and Kirsten together and just sort of the, the story as a whole. It's really well done. Um, it's on HBO Max. Uh, Keith, you're a fan too, I believe, right? Yeah. Of the book as well. It's, a, I mean, I guess to compare it to the last one, it's a, there's scary, upsetting stuff in it. I think the first episode's really chilly mm-hmm. as the pandemic spreads through, through our own Chicago. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but um, but it's a gentler show than yeah. The Last of Us as well, uh, um, and I but I think it's they're really connected to there. There is, I think this is more in the book than the series, but but there's sort of a, a quote from Star Trek Voyager that becomes sort of like a motto for some of the characters, which is survival is insufficient, mm-hmm. which I think is sort of like you could apply that to Last of Us of as well, and or Children of Men for that matter. It's like what is beyond just surviving like what what is what is what makes life worth living besides you know living itself and i, I think that's an interesting thing to kind of follow through all three of this i yeah i can't recommend it highly enough i i think the whole thing's really good i think the first couple episodes are like are like the third episode of last of us like like some of the best television i've seen <laughs> period you know it's just really remarkable stuff so and i think it was a little overlooked in some ways uh uh, so I'm hoping it kind of, you know, I, I know other people are comparing the two. So I'm hoping the comparison kind of, kind of, you know, lifts the boat of, of the series as well. It is funny that, you know, survival is you know, insufficient, the way that parallels with uh, episode five of Last of Us and the uh, endure and survive motto from the mm-hmm, comic book, mm-hmm. which gets repeated several times over and is very obviously emotionally important to the uh, the younger cast and then the older cast just pretty ruthlessly mocks it. <laughs> but uh, while Station Eleven is, I would definitely say, gentler and also just way more structurally focused, like the the structure of that story is very interesting in and of itself. It does have some really direct parallels, including sequences where people realize the pandemic is real because planes just start plummeting <laughs> out of the sky out of nowhere. Yeah. Yep. Let's just do. Let's keep going. Let's do a whole other episode on on uh, on Station Eleven. Do we have seen seen Brother Bear in. again, though? Yeah, Brother Bear too. <laughs> well, that'll do it for this episode of the Next Picture Show. But we'll be back next week with another pairing. Genevieve, do you want to tell us about our episodes dropping on February twenty first and twenty eighth? Our next pairing is going to be an unusual one for us—a double feature where we may not be able to strongly recommend either movie. Still, it was hard to pass up the connections between Magic Mike's Last Dance, Steven Soderbergh's return to the Channing Tatum soulful stripper film series, and Vincente Minnelli's 1951 classic musical An American in Paris, another song and dance fantasy about a man who reluctantly accepts the artistic patronage of a rich woman who praises his talent as an artist, while not so secretly being a little obsessed about his talent in other arenas. 
The gender politics of being a kept ban in 1951 and 2023 look very different, and so do the styles of dance on display in these two movies. But they're both romances about poverty and art, about wealth and romance, and about navigating the distance between them through big, show-stopping performance sequences. We'll explore two different kinds of male musical fantasies next time on The Next Picture Show. For now, we welcome your feedback on Children of Men, The Last of Us, um, Brother Bear, uh, Station <laughs> Eleven, or anything else film-related that you'd like to talk about. Email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net or leave us a voicemail at 773-234-9730. Before we close out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Tasha? I am the film and streaming editor at Polygon.com, where I periodically write about film as well. I'm on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. Genevieve? I am the TV editor at Vulture, where I am uh, heading up our Last of Us coverage, uh, which includes recaps by one Keith Phipps, along with a bunch of other stuff that I am uh, uh, excited to have probably come out by the time this episode airs, so I'm not going to tease it too specifically. But, you know, go to the Last of Us page on Vulture, and you can see what, what I've been up to there. And uh, I am on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. Scott? Uh, I, um, I'm on Elon Musk's anti-vax conspiracy <laughs> site at, at Scott underscore Tobias. You can also find my, uh, Wait, is that Peach? Uh, oh, Peach is on, Peach is a, is a wonderful place. It just should needs, be Smirch Peach. Yeah. For, I'll, uh, yeah. I'm going to play Peach Ball after this, uh, <laughs> after this podcast. I'll pay it alone. Nobody's on there. It's like me. I'm like I'm like uh, Charlton Heston in that movie, you know, Omega Man. I'm just that's me and Peach right now. So anyway, uh, you can find me there, uh, Twitter, <laughs> uh, and then you can find my work uh, at such publications as uh, New York Times, uh, The Guardian, uh, Vulture, other fine publications. Um, I also my main uh, thing is to do uh, the reveal, the n- newsletter with uh, my pal Keith Phipps, and uh, you can find that at uh, thereveal.substack.com. Keith. You, you spoiled it. I, could, I was going to say that you can find me at thereveal.substack.com. Newsletter I do with my pal Scott Tobias. Uh, I'm also on Twitter at kfips3000. I'm a freelance writer contributing to such places as Vulture and GQ, The Ringer, and TV Guide. You can stay updated on the Next Picture Show at nextpictureshow.net and on Twitter at, at nextpicturepod. Get bonus content and open discussion at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. And as always, we appreciate your rating and reviews on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen to this show. Thanks to Dan, the Baked Jakes, for his assistance producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. Mm-hmm.